This week on the Totally Biased Media Podcast, we talk Psychonauts 2, discuss the worst companies in the entertainment biz, Jordan cracks the Da Vinci Code, and more. Prepare your mind for another psychically charged episode of TBM. I'm Jackson Walkup, and there's something in the fridge that might help you see the world like I do. I'm Jason Simmons, and I can feel out the galaxy and hear the flow of time. I'm Jordan Walkup, and it's my first day on the job. Folks, it has been 16 years, or two weeks, depending on how you see things. Or three days. Yeah, that, that too. But Psychonauts 2 is finally upon us. This sequel is the immediate follow-up to Psychonauts 1, where Rasputin, a psychic at a summer camp for psychics, dreams of becoming a psychonaut. Throughout the game, he uncovers all kinds of secrets about the camp that he is now invading, sort of trying to break into, trying to not get kicked out of, and... A whole mess of conspiracies regarding the camp and the Psychonauts unfold. And it ends with with Rasputin saving the day and becoming a Psychonaut himself. And this game, 16 years later, picks up three days later. (laughs) Now, I don't want to give away too much of what this story is. So He needs to investigate the secrets of the original founding of the Psychonauts in order to solve a mystery and defeat an ancient enemy that could change the face of the organization forever. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Pretend I said that. But anyways, Raz is finally a Psychonaut, but it's not, not as wonderful as it seems. You know, getting drafted as a child to be in a secret organization that fights crime around the world wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, as you might expect. We have a lot to get into with this game. So let's start with sort of the story. I set it up saying that it's just a couple of days after the first game, but this game really opens up a lot about the world of the Psychonauts. How well do you think it conveys the Psychonauts, like, as an entity and their effect on the world. Because I think that was one of the one of the things that this game actually did a lot better than the first. Yeah, I thought the first game, it pretty much just seemed like the Psychonauts were just a very, like a small group of international spies, I guess. It, it kind of seemed like Sasha and Mia were like the best of the best, but at the same time, they're just working at the summer camp for some reason. It doesn't seem like the Psychonauts are that big or important of an organization. (laughs) This game, right away, it throws you straight into the headquarters for the Psychonauts, which is this giant building with people using psychic powers to just do super mundane stuff like all over the place and 
it's almost like an office building in some parts and then other parts you have to like use mental abilities just to get up to the second floor <laughs> um i think that sort of taking taking everything i knew about the the psychonauts just from the first game i kind of pictured them more as like superhero vigilante types like this is a handful of people with really cool powers that travel the world and like save people you know where they can but this game shows the psychonauts are more like an international organization that is always monitoring for this stuff and that they have like a very established and i don't even know how to describe it like they have a very they have like an established presence throughout the world is kind of what it seems like and they they kind of they set that up quite a bit in rhombus of ruin in the very beginning of it while they're flying to try to track down the truman zanato the kidnapped head of the psychonauts they're they call into the mother lobe and like they're trying to get information and the mother lobe is just like completely ignoring them basically (laughs) and then on top of that they're talking about you know, all the different bases and research centers that the Psychonauts have throughout the world. And that was kind of interesting and surprising based on the first game. Because <laughs> like you said, it just kind of seemed like a really small, probably tight-knit group of people. And the fact that they're like running a summer camp to train children to join their organization kind of implies that it's a relatively small thing. Especially considering it's... It kind of seems like the, the psychic part of whispering rock is kept somewhat secret or maybe it's just this existence in general like it's something you have to get invited to there's a lot of stuff to sort of separate whispering rock from the rest of the world but it's also funny because they just straight up have a sign like facing a major road that just says like whispering rock psychic summer camp (laughs) uh, yeah there's there were there were some interesting choices in how it was presented there. But, like, this game really... It really turns the world of the Psychonauts on its head from what I think most of us uh, assumed about about the organization from the first game. And I think it's actually a really cool direction. Because it you get to see this bustling office with psychics doing all kinds of mainly mundane, like Jason said, things. But, like, it shows you know, wildly powerful individuals that are changing the world in major secret ways still have to deal with, like, bureaucracy. Yeah, they're still just completely inefficient because of how much bureaucracy they have to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, the the very first thing you do, you're going into, like, the interim head of the Psychonauts brain. (laughs) And and her biggest concern is just, like, Money. Are we making enough money? Like, are we going to be able to continue this whole operation with the money that we're making? Uh, absolutely terrified of spending or risking anything uh, beyond what's absolutely necessary. Coming from per- someone that could literally just trick anybody that they needed to buy something for into believing they already paid for one. Do you guys feel like sort of the the character progression stuff was underutilized as well? Because I felt like it wasn't. It was weird that they made the change like they did and then didn't do more with it. Yeah, there was only a few abilities that really seemed like they got that much better when they were upgraded. And some of them were, like, necessary if you actually wanted to, like, collect everything in the game. 
Everything yeah. else is just really small incremental upgrades or they're completely combat focused upgrades. Right. Right. And then there's the pins, which you can only have three equipped at a time. Some of them are just cosmetic. Yeah, yeah that really annoyed me. Because, uh, like, when they introduce you the pins, the first three options they give you the pick from are ones that change the color of your levitation ball. And those are going to take up a pin slot. So after you get actually useful pins, you just are not able to change the com- cosmetics of your levitation ball. Ah, but see, that's where they get you. All the pins are too expensive. Yeah. I did not care to spend money on the pins because none of them seemed like good enough upgrades. Yeah, it, it was weird. I bought the ones that were like 50% discount or whatever and like two times titanium <laughs> yeah. earned and then I don't think I bought any more pins. I used, I used the one that made my levitation ball blue, the one that made it to where my... Uh, the Mind Blast or Psy Blast or whatever would bounce between more enemies. Yeah, I had that one too. Uh, and then there was a third one, which was so inconsequential I don't remember it. <laughs> there was one that lets you pet animals, but like, why is that something I have to have a pin for? I feel That's like something where I should just be able to do. Yeah, I feel like some of the pins should have just been things that you buy, and then they're just always active. And then yeah. you actually have, like, the game-changing ones as the three. None of the pin system really made sense in my mind. The good news is, it's incredibly inconsequential. Yeah, there was a really weird bug with the levitation ball color, too, where sometimes it would just ignore it until you actually used the levitation ball. So, like, you would double jump, and it would be the default green or yellow, whatever. But, uh... It's orange. <laughs> whatever. Leave me alone. <laughs> I can't see colors. (laughs) Yeah. At first, I was like, oh, this is smart. You know, you get to sort of pick what to upgrade in the game, and then they just do basically nothing with it. But overall, doesn't really affect the game that much at all. Because this game isn't a game about powers or the upgrades or the... I I don't really know what else. This is a game about going into the mines overall what did you guys think of the individual levels in the game the individual mines you go into i thought they were all pretty good i doubt you guys will agree but i personally think every single world in this game is better than the ones in the first game the only thing that's like i guess i shouldn't compare too much to the first game yet but like i feel like every single word in world in this one is more unique one of the worlds is called strike city it is a city that is all, like, germ people. <laughs> that there are giant bowling balls that you ride around on to complete stuff in the mission. There's the, um, one of the first ones, the casino, which is a hospital turned into a casino that you have to do a few things in to eventually fight a, like, giant casino octopus. <laughs> and, like, other than, I, I guess... The writing from the Milkman level in the first game, I think all the worlds in this game are far above the first game. <laughs> They're a lot more interesting to look at and to explore. I disagree. <laughs> what? Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> I mean, I just felt like a lot of the worlds were kind of samey. Like, all there, there are some that definitely stick out. I don't think the Casino Hospital one is one of them that much. There's the world, like... One of the last worlds you go into is, it's all about like plants and stuff, 
And it's just a bunch of different islands that you go to and you go into like a giant bottle and explore a little world in there. And there's like some interesting stuff, but I don't know. It didn't feel... I didn't have that much fun exploring that world. One of the worlds is basically just a big library. (laughs) I thought that one was pretty cool. Because that one, there were some sections where you like go into the pages of books and it turns into a 2D platformer for a little. And like everything is made out of like words and drawings instead of the normal 3D animation. I, I think my bigger issue is that it didn't really feel like anything mechanically changed between worlds. You didn't have worlds that really had, like, gravity changing all the time. There were small sections in a couple worlds that were like that. There definitely wasn't any world like uh, Lunkfishopolis, where, you know, the game basically plays completely differently for a while. I guess the worlds are visually varied, but not mechanically varied. Yes. Whereas in the first game, there was, other than maybe Black Velvetopia there was sort of a sameness to the visual style of it, but mechanically they were very different. And I think that... There's only, like, one world in this one that really has that unique of a visual style, like, in in the style of Black Velvetopia. Yeah. Because Black Velvetopia made everything kind of have the same style as, like, the Black Velvet paintings. And there's one world in this that kind of gives everything, like, a... I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. The very psychedelic, cel-shaded, that one was kind of very interesting, but then the levels themselves were not as creatively designed, or at least not as interestingly designed. It just felt like random things all over the place in those worlds. I think the biggest difference is mechanics in the first game are not really based on your abilities. Like, the theater world, you have to, like, change scenes of a theater to progress, and like Lungfishopolis, you're a giant. In this game, it's more centered around your abilities. For instance, in Psyking, that's when you get the time freezing ability, which personally I don't think that's too like amazing and- of an ability or anything. But like, I thought the rest of the world was a st- stood out enough to me that I didn't really care that much about it being not that interesting mechanically. Yeah, but you point out that the mechanics are based around your abilities. The problem is you get all of the abilities that actually affect the way you move around the world by the third level. The biggest change is, you know, you've got new abilities that are actually usable in combat in this game. (laughs) A lot of the abilities in the first game were not very good in combat. In this one, I'd say every single ability is, even like the mental connection one, which is a new one that lets you, uh, like, there are, there, it's a pretty early mission in the game. There are, like, points for thoughts that float in the air that you connect by going between them with this ability. And you can also use that in combat to draw small enemies near you or draw yourself to large enemies, which is pretty useful in combat because, like, you know, if you've got some, uh, like, a lot of small enemies, like, around you and there's a big enemy a little off, you can, like, get yourself out of there and not die. <laughs> but I still feel like the gameplay after a while gets a little stale, but thankfully this is not a long game, so that's not for very long. Yeah, I'll kind of expand upon upon that a little bit. So this time around there are eight abilities, and each of them has essentially two functions. One is more 
just for combat and one is for the more puzzle platformer side of the game. And I think that the combat was certainly a weak point of the first game. And it is a tremendous improvement here. It's it's no it's longer, actually fun. <laughs> it it's no longer holding the game back for sure. Like it's still just good. Like it's not it's not great. There's nothing about it that I love, but it never like actu- actively gets in the way of the game like it did the first time around. And I think a big part of that is just the fact that they've figured out ways to incorporate all of your powers into combat. Whereas combat in the first game was essentially just punching and shooting and that was that was it. <laughs> Occasionally you had to throw something, but only if that was the only way to fight an enemy. Yeah. I'll play uh, a bit of devil's advocate. I'll say the combat is definitely much better than the first game, which is good because there's like probably 20 to 30 times the amount of combat in this game that there was in the first one. It's almost like a main focus of this game to the point where it's kind of detrimental to the the puzzle solving aspects of the game because there's so many combat arenas. There are too many. I will, I will absolutely agree with that. It felt like I, I personally preferred the first game. Uh, now that I've put some kind of space between this game and the second, like this game and the first one, I preferred the first game because the first game has you know really good writing uh, and there's actually some interesting puzzle solving elements. And I think that this one doesn't really deliver in those aspects as well, that well. I like the combat and the platforming itself is much better. It feels more fluid and it makes better use of your abilities, which is good because the there's really very little puzzle solving at all in this game. I think that the biggest difference between these games and one of the detriments to this game is the fact that the abilities, which are sort of the cornerstone of any potential puzzle solving elements, are a lot more cut and dry this time around you have an ability like for example jackson mentioned the mental link before anytime you can use the mental link there is just a floating ball out in space that's very clear very obvious that's what you need to do in the first game sometimes you would need to use powers in ways that didn't seem as immediately clear i think that that makes this game more straightforward but straightforward isn't necessarily the best metric for a game that wants to be puzzle-centric. I think the first game was a puzzle platformer, whereas this game is more just an action platformer. I think both games do what they want to do very, very well, but I do think that because of that distinction, this one doesn't quite live up to the first one in my mind. What will determine how you think the worlds compare and overall how the game compares is do you think the pivot from a puzzle-centric game to a platformer is a good change? Because if you really like platformers, like I do, you're going to really like all of the levels in Psychonauts 2, and you're going to think that there's some good diversity to it. If you are looking for the same type of puzzle-centric challenges that there were in the first game, they're really not here. There is a lot of... Like, like Jason said, there's visual variety to the levels, but there is not mechanical variety. All the levels you are platforming, and the variety comes from the little wrinkles that your powers bring in. But essentially, they are all platforming levels. For me, I did not see that as a negative. 
it wasn't as original or as exciting as the first game, but it also wasn't holding anything back. Yeah, I don't because of it. I don't see it as a positive or a negative. I just see it as a difference. Yeah. I, yeah. I also have issues like you've mentioned the mental connection ability a couple times. And in the first world where that gets introduced, there's this whole idea of you can connect ideas in people's mind to kind of change the way that they see the world and the way they think. And what you do in the story, and this is, you know, it's bad, and they they make sure to tell Raz, like, that's a complete breach of trust and everything. What you do in the story is you go into someone's mind and you associate money with risk, I believe. Yes. And that causes the head of the psychonaut, the interim head of the psychonauts to start taking like crazy unnecessary risks because she thinks that it'll help them get money to keep the psychonauts afloat and make sure that everything's going to go well. That idea never comes up again after that world. Yeah. Which that seems like it should have been the whole focus of the ability and the idea that you could like actually have some kind of effect on the world around you. Even you don't even affect that world very much with those abilities. There's the there's the part where it starts as a hospital and it becomes a casino. The world never changes again from you connecting ideas. It's it's just it seemed like such a really cool idea, and when I first saw it, I was very excited for it. And the fact that it was only used once was a huge letdown. Yeah, I will say it is interesting that they didn't do more with that, but like, I don't think I was let down by that. I think that a much bigger, more ambitious game could do something really really substantial with that i don't necessarily think it needed to be something that was used a lot i just thought it was really disappointing that it it comes up one time in the whole game and it's in the second world if it came up again as like a solution to a much bigger problem down the road i think that would have tied it together a little bit better i I don't really think there's too much tying together a lot of the worlds because there's you go into the i guess that's kind of weird to say because see i think that i think this game actually does that much better than the first game I think the worlds are actually connected in a really interesting way, mainly because you know a lot more about the backgrounds of the characters you're going into the minds of. I think that just the just the actual hook of this game being that you are going into the minds of important people for the history of the Psychonauts, I think that that alone is such a cool premise that it really really elevates this whole game a lot. Because you find out that there were basically six figures that were essential to the formation of the Psychonauts. And this game, a lot lot of the worlds you go into are the minds of those characters. And I think that seeing the foundation of the Psychonauts through the minds of the people that made it is just so cool. Like, you learn so much about these characters, and they are all really interesting, bar one or two. (laughs) And they... You learn so much about this world, specifically details that you didn't think were important, that you thought you didn't care about, but are actually really formative for what this game is. And I think that that is one of the best parts about this game, is that the fact that those worlds are all those worlds are all important characters that mean a lot to the universe as well. I think that's why I don't really care so much about the gameplay not being the best. Let me put it this way. One of my favorite games is The Last of Us. The gameplay in that sucks, but it has a good story and good world and environments. And I think when a game has the, something good enough like that, it can outshine the gameplay. 
And then, like, I'm not saying a game should have bad gameplay if it has a good world and characters and stuff. I mean, it does not need to be top-notch. I mean, I think the gameplay is significantly better than the story in this game. So... Yeah, I'll agree with that. The story is very by the numbers. Um, I mean, it, it is very much just a story about essentially getting the band back together. Well, I don't yeah. so much just mean the story itself, but like the world that is presented, that is expanded on from the first game, the characters that are expanded on from the first game, and the new characters that add much more to the world of the game. I kind of wish that there were more returning characters. Yeah, well, the only returning characters that matter are Ford and The teachers Rass. from... I don't even think Sasha and Mia matter that much in this game. Like, they no, don't come up that yeah. much. Yeah, after, like, the th- like the second or third world, they're not seen again until the very end of the game. This game is very much Ford's story, more so than Raz's. Yeah. yeah. Raz is more just a tool for Ford to get the story moving along throughout a lot of this. Yeah, I'd say that's And I genuinely didn't it. see a problem with that. I actually really enjoyed that. No, I, I'm not but, complaining. I, it's just, yeah. you know, something interesting. Yeah. Because, like, Raz doesn't... You get Raz's story from the first game. You know right. that he grew up hating psychics, runs away from the circus to become a better psychic, or he grew up with a family hating psychics, but he still wants to become a psychic. You kind of have his whole backstory in that. He's a kid. He doesn't have decades of things to really get into. Whereas Ford Crowler in the first game is sort of this, like, He's an important figure, but he's also kind of like... It's kind of there. You know, he's a mess. And this game, a big chunk of it is putting that back together. And you find out that Ford got into some stuff back in the day. And that he had a a pretty substantial role in the highs and the lows of the Psychonauts. And I think that's all explored incredibly well. Like, this game is absolutely at its best when it's getting into the relationships between the founding members of the Psychonauts and the way that they come up in each other's minds. I wish that some of them were a little bit more important. For example, like a, a good example is Otto. Yeah. He, he yeah. doesn't come up as a major character in anyone's mind. And you don't explore his mind. Like, he doesn't come up as a major character in anyone's mind. And you don't explore his mind. I just wish there were... It's kind of weird to have like this focused story where the whole thing is mostly based on, you know, these this handful of characters and the founding of the Psychonauts, essentially, and then just basically leave one out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the story that's presented, it makes... I would even say there's a, there's a second one that also basically just gets left out. And story-wise, it kind of makes sense that he, that Otto's mind is not really explored, explored or anything, because like... He's still working with the current Psychonauts, and, like, he doesn't really have a whole lot of mess going on, but it is still weird that you explore the mind of every other Psychonauts but him. There's one world in the game for one of the, the Psychic Six members, and it's it's all based around a cooking game show. And the whole time, you're you're plucking members from the audience who are all, like, different types of food, and you have to cook them and, like, chop them up and stuff like that. It's really weird. <laughs> And, like, all of the different kitchen utensils that you're using can talk and they, like, react to you mutilating the, these pieces of food. <laughs> There's one part where you have to, like, cut up a piece, uh, like, a pig with a giant butcher <laughs> that looks like a pig. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very good level. 
it sort of it sort of had the wackiness and the weirdness of the first game, but when combined with the better mechanics of this game, I think it was that one was a real home run. That's what and, I would uh, have liked to have seen for the whole game. Like that kind of thing. I would say that world probably had the best like world mechanic and it's probably one of the short the shorter worlds too. Yeah. On a smaller map. But but just because they focused on an idea instead of just platforming, I think helped a ton. This one I think is a good one to talk about how the worlds demonstrate like how the characters' minds that you're in are feeling. Compton Bull's whole thing is he feels very judged and anxious when it comes towards the other Psychic Six members. And the whole thing with this world is he has to serve food to goat puppets of the other Psychonaut members from the Psychic Six. And the entire time, the whole point of it is you're supposed to free him from that anxiety that he... Well, you're not supposed to free him. You're supposed to work with him to overcome it. Right, yeah. You're supposed to help him overcome this anxiety, and by the end, and when you leave the level, he is a much more, like, put-together person. Now, that is one thing we have not really touched on at all that I think this game does exceptionally well. Each of the people that you visit in this game are fighting with something, and every level is structured around this idea of not curing their mental illnesses or fixing all their problems for them, but approaching their issues in ways that are attainable for themselves. They are always about helping someone by giving them the tools they need to overcome something in their own mind. And I think it's all done tastefully, in interesting ways. There are some genuinely funny moments as it's getting worked out. Like, I think this game just knocks that out of the park in every capacity. Other than, like, a few of the later worlds where you're getting into, like, straight-up villains and stuff, I think you make genuinely positive changes in these people's lives in ways that are actually sensible. And that is something that I don't think the first game necessarily did as well, just because we weren't at a point where, as a culture, we were really addressing mental health issues in a lot of mainstream art like this. I think the first game also was more supposed to be like black comedy like it's supposed to be very dark (laughs) the idea that they're just sending children into people's minds where they can wreck any kind of havoc and they're they're teaching the kids like they can do this at home essentially and then you go into this like asylum and you're just going into the minds of mentally unwell people as a child and doing stuff in there and just kind of hoping that it cures their mental illnesses yeah. I, I just I think they kind of dropped that aspect of it when they were making the sequel, which I'm, I I don't know if that's good or bad necessarily. I thought the first game I thought it was really kind of like a funny, interesting thing. Like I I don't think that the Psychic Summer Camp makes as much sense in the context of Psych- Psychonauts two. Like this organization does not seem like they would be okay with that <laughs> as much yeah. as the what as what I'm kind of presented with in the first game. I do think this game sort of backtracks on itself a little bit in how it arranges the priorities of the Psychonauts. But I think that, you know, even if mechanically the levels are a bit too similar, you address, like, real relatable things within each character. And I think that, if nothing else, that is something that this game does extremely well that I have not seen other games do anywhere near this well. So I very much appreciate that, if if nothing else. Yeah, it definitely makes a very earnest 
point about mental illness and like you can't just fix people and kind of goes into the idea that like therapy therapists don't just fix people it's about helping people work on themselves giving them tools to uh, to reach attainable goals but never just straight up saying like oh well you're anxious and the way to fix that is to get out there and be confident it's it's never that simple and this game addresses that in a really in a really good way and i think it's be- it's best done with ford whereas they kind of established in the first game that he's he's broken like his mind does not work anymore the only way that he can even like maintain any semblance of sanity is when he has titanium like directly on him when he needs to be like near this huge this huge meteorite full of like psychoactive rock (laughs) in order to just be a normal functioning human which i don't really think that makes sense anymore in the context of the second game yeah, like I, I don't see how him having better psychic control of himself would allow him to put his broken psyche together. It's, I don't know. That's kind of weird. But I do really like Ford's character in this game. So we've already gotten into it a lot. But just overall, and I think I already know the answer to this, what are some important things in this game and how do they compare to the first game? Like for me, I think that the overall quality of the world's is actually better than the first game. It doesn't have any really highs like the first game did. There's no, you know, Lungfishopolis or the Milkman Conspiracy or Black Velvetopia. But I think that the baseline of pretty good is is solid throughout the game. But I also think that dropping some of the puzzle elements is sort of a detriment and the comedy is, is not there. How do you guys think it, it compares overall? Personally, and I feel like Jason is really not going to like what I'm going to say, but I honestly do not think... Like, I don't think the worlds in Psychonauts 1 are bad, but I don't think any of them, except, like, writing-wise, are that great. I think in Psychonauts 2, the worlds are much better, and they all feel different from one another and still good, the gameplay is just the biggest issue with them, as in not really anything interesting from one another happens. They're kind of just they're kind of just visual spectacles. I don't think I've ever heard someone use visual spectacles as a positive way to refer to something, but all right. Um, yeah, I mean, like it's literally the lowest priority when you're rating movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like I've kind of said, I I think the first game kind of like Jordan mentioned, it doesn't have any worlds that are bad, right? I think the biggest issue that this game has that the first game didn't really have as much is that all the levels in this game are closer to the baseline, <laughs> whereas the first game definitely had... There were bad levels, like the like Gloria's uh, Theater, which was... In- it was like an interesting puzzle thing to do, but it wasn't very fun to explore. And then there's Meat Circus, which is just around terrible the entire time. <laughs> Yeah, Meat Circus is definitely the the worst world in it. I, it just doesn't feel like there's quite as many worlds that stick out and are really good. Uh, obviously, the Psy King's world with the whole psychedelic uh, aspect is really interesting. And then there's <laughs> the the one with Compton Bull that we mentioned where it's a cooking show. 
I didn't think any of the the forward worlds were that good. I thought they were really interesting from a story perspective, but I didn't think that they were like that cool. All the worlds in this game are good, but I would say that they're much closer together in quality. There's there's not any of them that particularly stick out as being like really really good and super memorable. I liked the cooking show one and I completely forgot about it until we were talking about it. Like I just think this game isn't memorable. In, in the same way that the first one is. And maybe that's just because I've been playing the first one for, you know, a decade and a half. No, I, I think that's exactly what it is. Now that, I, now that I've heard you say it, that is exactly the issue with this game. And that's, ex- that's exactly why I prefer this game over the first one. Because I only played the first game, like, a week before the second one came out. You know, 17 years after it came out, too. <laughs> but here's the thing. This game is good it has a very cool world it has cool characters it has some really exciting stuff that you get into it i think that it expands upon like the world and the characters and stuff a lot from the first game but the first game was weird and ridiculous and did not take itself seriously at all and those aren't things that are inherently good but they're things that are memorable and this game while i really really enjoyed it I don't think it's a game I'm going to want to come back to 15 years from now because I think there will be games that are better platformers, games that tell better stories, and games that address important issues like mental health better. I really enjoyed this game for what it was, but I don't think that this is a game that's going to like really stick with me like Psychonauts 1 was. Until you said that, I don't think I really put it together in my own head that that was the case. Well, I think that the biggest part, the biggest advantage that the original Psychonauts have has is originality and creativity. There weren't games like Psychonauts, and there really haven't been since. Whereas with Psychonauts 2, there is one game that is like Psychonauts. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> Which ooh. one is it? It's called Psychonauts. Ah. <laughs> uh, no, it's just the problem is that Psychonauts has been done before. Yeah. Some games. Maybe we didn't need a sequel for this. Some games are genuinely at their best when there isn't something else that it's tied to. And, like, I don't think that's necessarily the case here, but I do think that there was an innate uniqueness to Psychonauts 1 that isn't necessarily going to be captured in a sequel under any circumstances. I, I don't know. I like Psychonauts 2. I would definitely say it's good, and it's a sequel that deserved to be made. My issue, I guess, with it is that it is a sequel. <laughs> and I don't think that it improves on enough stuff. It definitely There's definitely improvements. Combat is obviously improved. Like I said, the worlds being you know, more similar in quality to each other is generally a good thing, I would say. But the problem is that I'm stuck comparing it to Psychonauts 1, which did a lot of the same things that Psychonauts 2 did, and I've is has been a part of my life for my whole life, almost. And again, that's just why I like Psychonauts 2 so much more. Psychonauts 1 has not been with me my entire life. Psychonauts 1 has been with me for a week. And I think that's totally valid. Like, I don't think your criticisms of this of this game or Psychonauts 1 mean any less than someone who played the first game years and years ago and it's been important to them. I think it's just, for me and for Jason as well, there's something 
there's something special about the first game, and it's not just nostalgia. It's that it did something weird that we got to sort of witness firsthand. It managed to capture the energy of the 90s, like with the the adventure games that LucasArts was putting out and uh, you know Sierra was doing the same thing. It managed to capture that energy and creativity and like uniqueness and art style and stuff like that in a way that the second one can't because it's been 20 years since those things were worked on. Like, this was the first... Psychonauts 1 was the first game that Double Fine made after Tim Schafer left LucasArts. Well, it was the first game Double Fine made, but, you know, Tim Schafer was fresh out of LucasArts at that point. And most of his work had been on point-and-click adventure games, some of the best point-and-click adventure games of all time. And he has not worked on point-and-click adventure games of that caliber or quality since the 90s. And I also think, like, kind of the things that people focus on when they're writing have definitely changed. I think there's a bigger focus on characterization in Psychonauts 2. Whereas the first game was more written to be funny, which kind of makes, like, it makes it stand out more in memory. Because, like, there's a lot of funny stuff in there that was pretty unique and only came up because of the situations that they were in. There was a lot of one-liners, whereas this game has funny dialogue, but it's dialogue. It's not one-liners. You don't have lines like, I am the milkman, my milk is delicious. You have parts where, like, Sasha is talking about Dr. Lobato having no, uh, he he has no willpower or whatever. Yeah, motivation. And Lobato's just like, thanks, dad. (laughs) And, like, that's a funny moment. But you need a second person to quote that moment. And no one's... It's why I'm not funny. I'm only funny when I'm making fun of someone else. That's why I have the same problem Psychonauts 2 does. Welcome to Impractical Jokers guest starring Jordan. <laughs> Oof. If I ever in any category can be compared to the Impractical Jokers, just take me out. <laughs> also, one thing I want to point out, Jackson. I, I don't think that your opinions are weird or wrong or crazy or anything. I think... I think genuinely 99% of people that played Psychonauts 1 and then Psychonauts 2, one after the other now, I think almost all of them would prefer to. I think that the first game was just a product of its time. Right. Not that that's a slight on it in any way, but I do genuinely think that like anyone that played them back to back for the first time now would like Psychonauts 2 better. But all that said, let's talk about scores. <laughs> okay. Jackson... Give us the pros and cons and, and, a, and a number. <laughs> As I've already said, I like a majority of this game. Gameplay is good. Not the greatest. I think it could be a good bit better. The characters and world are heavily built upon from the first game in such good ways. And, I mean, I guess, like, I still don't think the story's that special. I do think it's more interesting than the first game, though. I think that's because a lot of the first game is just uh, like, oh, Oleander is going to uh, control the world. And that's kind of it until the final mission where you actually like get into the backstory. But like with this yeah. game. Well, that's kind of something I tried to get into a little bit, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. The first game doesn't focus on its overarching story. The overarching story is to move you along from these like mini stories in everybody's minds. Whereas in this game, everything you're doing or at least 90% of it is building up towards the main story. Right. 
And I think that makes the game 10 times more interesting. Because one of my favorite things to look for in, in a game is a good story. And I think this game does that well, but I do not like the end of this game. <laughs> a big portion of that is spoiler stuff, so I won't get into that. But another problem is the final boss fight is the worst boss fight in the game. It is what everything in the game has been building up to, and then you essentially just use the same two powers to beat it. And I feel like, you know, the final boss fight of a game that is what the game has been building to either needs to be emotional or use all of the tricks you've learned throughout the game. And this game, the ending doesn't really do much of that during the final boss fight. So that leads me to give the game a 7 out of 10. My opinion, Psychonauts 2 is good. It's... Compare if I compare it to other games that are coming out right now, then I think I would give it like I think I would be more positive about it. The issue being maybe it's just even how recently we played Psychonauts One that I'm drawn to make a lot of comparisons between the two games, and it doesn't feel like it quite lives up to what I wanted from a sequel. That's hype for you. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's pretty understandable because like. That's the only other game that I've really played recently, and like, there's a good bit of it I like, but for the most part, I wasn't a fan, so I am comparing most of this game to a game that I did not like a majority of, and I think that's why I like the second one better. I think when you're making a good sequel, and we can go back to last week's discussion about the MCU, when you're making a good sequel, you need to improve on a lot of things. Like, it needs to feel like everything... It needs to feel like the sequel really deserves to be made to justify it. So you generally want everything to be bigger and better. And I think Psychonauts has some things that are bigger and better, like the combat, the different abilities and platforming, and some things that just don't feel as good, which is, I, I guess I'll say mechanical, like, like we complained, like mentioned at least, mechanical differences between levels it feels like you're doing the same thing you get all of your abilities too quickly in the game i think is part of it everything feels better right but it doesn't feel better enough <laughs> i'm having a hard time putting this into words if you look at sequels in the mcu right you got like iron man to iron man 2 where they made things bigger by just more explosions iron man 2 is not a good sequel because it doesn't focus on the things that it needs to. It doesn't feel like this bigger, better adventure that Iron Man's going on. It feels boring. Whereas Captain America 2 feels like a huge adventure. Because extremely different from what's going on in the first movie. The first movie is basically a, a war movie for a decent... I, war movie is a weird way to put it. But it's got war movie tones to it. Whereas the second one is a thriller. The combat scenes are better choreographed and they're more interesting, partially because there's two people that are involved in these fights instead of one. In, Iron in Captain America 2, he goes up against the Winter Soldier and there's a similar, similarly skilled equal to him. In an Iron Man 2, there are 400 carbon copy Iron Man suits that he has to fight. Jesus Christ, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a comparison get so far away from its starting point. I somehow, I somehow get what you're trying to say, but I cannot put that into words. <laughs> it's, 
it's an idea that's too complex for for one statement. <laughs> it needs to be shared in multiple references to other things. Just to put it basically, Psychonauts 2 improves on combat and platforming, but it loses out on the puzzle-solving roots and like the uniqueness that the first one really had before behind it. Ooh, I know how to say this, but I'm going to let you give it a score and then I'll say it. <laughs> Psychonauts 2 introduces ideas that never come up again, like I mentioned with the mental connections, and that really bothers me. Whereas I feel like if they had an ability like that in Psychonauts 1, it would come up maybe even too often. It doesn't feel like Psychonauts 2 mechanically builds on Psychonauts 1. It feels like they wanted to start over relatively fresh. The only thing that really gets kept is the super basic stuff. I don't feel... Like, Raz is, like, more powerful or more interesting. And I don't think Raz really grows as a character throughout this story, either. In fact, he doesn't really even get brought into the story, like, emotionally or anything until near the very end. And then you don't really see how it affects him, because then the game ends. (laughs) I'm just getting to this point where I have so many things I want to say about Psychonauts 2, and I can't figure out how to all work them into one coherent idea. Psychonauts 2 is good, not as good as Psychonauts 1. And I don't think it's just because of nostalgia. But I'll still give it 7.5 out of 10. Here's the way I see it. And I thought of this while you were speaking. This is a good game. Like, uh, like without a doubt in my mind, I, I enjoyed this game a lot. Like, all the way through. The problem is, this game improves on the things that Psychonauts 1 didn't do well but the things that psychonauts one did well are worse in this game yes that's that's it (laughs) so there's a lot of great things in psychonauts 2 and psychonauts 1 but the things that made psychonauts 1 great and unique are missing from psychonauts 2 yes that is exactly what it is it fixed the bad things but it made the good things worse so, let's just get a remake of Psychonauts 1 with the engine and graphics of Psychonauts 2. That's actually Problem something solved. That's actually something I've been thinking about that I think would make me enjoy the game a lot more. The first game that is just a remake of it. Not like a remaster, but like Final Fantasy 7, not that deep of a remake, but like those type of remakes. I really think you guys yeah. should try more old games. I think it'll really help with your opinions on what makes an old game good and bad yeah (laughs) or it'll it'll just give you more to think about because see like you know i was born in 2003 so by the time i started playing a lot of games they were all pretty similar to the kind of how they are now so like going back to psychonauts one is hard and frustrating and it made me not want to play the game (laughs) because those came into video games in the brown orange tint era no i think about it it was, like, roughly the 2008-2009 era, like, when Jackson was about five years old, when video games were just like, what if we were all kind of the same? So, like, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's when every game started to become an action RPG, too. That's when AAA games arose. But anyways... This game does a lot really well. I think that as someone who enjoys platformers, this is a good platformer. 
It has a lot of really cool visual ideas. It expands upon some really cool stuff about the world from Psychonauts 1. I really liked most of the characters, and I liked the fact that you could get to know them a lot more than you could characters in the first game. But that being said, I think it lost a lot of its personality. I don't think this game was as weird and over-the-top as the first game was, which I think were some of the best parts about the first game. I think that the baseline level in this game, everything's everything's closer to good. It's just that nothing is exceptional. Nothing is really memorable about this one. And I think it sort of suffers for that. But again, this if you're just if you're okay with the fact that this just is a platformer, I think you're going to really enjoy this game because I think it has some good platforming in some very cool worlds. And I think that just that, that core concept carries it enough that I would still give it an 8 out of 10, even if there was some things about it that I can't quite get my head around. <laughs> yeah, like it's. I can agree. I, I, I think it's a definitely a very good game. I think that it doesn't feel like a Psychonauts 2. Yeah, that's that sums it up well. I think something I've realized listening to your guys' review versus my review is a lot of how it's being reviewed for me is what the game itself does, not based on what it does better or worse than another game. While a lot of what now I'm not saying this is bad. I think it's I think it's a very important thing to talk about with the sequel. But what a lot of what you guys are doing is talking about what is better or worse than the first game. Would you review Star Wars Episode Five without the context of Episode Four? Well, no, it, it is an important distinction. Right. Jackson, yeah. you are being like, see, what I'm doing is reviewing this well. And what no. you guys no, are what doing I, no, is No, what I'm saying biased. is... <laughs> but I, I, know, I know what you mean. And yeah. I, it's a totally valid point. We're, there are going to be two groups of people for this. People that are very familiar with the first game and that it was an important part of, of their video game background. And there are going to be people that are entirely new to this series. And they are going to have drastically different takes on right. this. The more you like Psychonauts 1, the less you'll like Psychonauts 2. Right. That's probably I guess, fair. Yeah, I guess the better way for me to word this is... I'm, I'm kind of reviewing this as what it can do for itself as a game. And you guys are doing half that and half what it can do for the Psychonauts franchise. Which, again, well, I, don't, I don't think I'm that's a bad that thing. I'm not saying that it should be a franchise. Or not a franchise, I, I just didn't know another word to use for it. The Psychonauts series, I don't think there's series, a problem with that, though. No, I'm not saying there's a problem with it. I'm saying I think that's what makes our reviews different. Yeah, it's this... Also, we have good taste. Look, y'all talk about how <laughs> I have bad taste in games, but also, most of my favorite games are some of the most well-received games. Cool. You have good taste in games because you agree with more people. Congrats. No, I'm not saying it's because I agree with more people. I'm saying, you know, just so happens the games that I really like are also games that tend to be relatively liked by other people. It really just boils down to, like, <laughs> Jackson likes AAA games and Jason does not. <laughs> like, And you like Roblox. Generally speaking, <laughs> generally speaking, that's just the rule. <laughs> like, Yeah. AAA games, they take the soul out of it. I don't, I don't think uh, that. I disagree. I think some of the most emotional games I've played are AAA games, like Last of Us or God of War or Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah, but those, like I said, those games could just be movies. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of different, right? 
Psychonauts 1 couldn't be a movie. Uh, Psychonauts 2 couldn't be a movie either. But the reason that AAA games all have good story, good emotional stories, is because they're written like movies. The player doesn't affect them. So you can write one plot. And, uh, and, like, and we don't see a problem with that. Like, it's not... It's not a problem. I'm just saying AAA games don't have the same kind of soul because they're written by committee, essentially. They're written the same way movies are. And I think AAA movies are generally not as good as the movies that you see made by, like, smaller creatives a lot of times, too. Like, if you think about some of the best movies of all time, they're not generally made by people that made several... They're not... They're not quite... They're not like MCU movies, right? No one's going to talk about like MCU movies. Even though they're good movies and they're fun to go watch and I enjoy them, no one's going to talk them about them in, you know, 50 years the same way people talk about like Alien now. Right. I think that a lot of the video games that Sony puts out, especially, which are really good uh, story-wise and they're really interesting and they tell interesting stories, are going to be forgotten by time. And I think games like Psychonauts are not. I think that there's a case for something in the middle, though. Like, I think that... Let's look at Ghost of Tsushima being the most most recent one. I think that you're probably right in that there will be a good chunk of the audience that will just totally forget this game exists in the next several years. But then there are also big, expansive games in that style, like Horizon, which is weirder and offer something different enough that i think that it will maintain but horizon's not really a triple a game like i mean it's I still a it sony is. first party deal like yeah it's i, don't I think mean, I mean just... it's it's big enough that one of the headlining games for the ps5 is forbidden west yeah but it wasn't portrayed as that before it came out i think it's part of it they didn't expect horizon to do what it did i think that's fair yeah I think that's part of AAA games and AAA movies is the studio. If a AAA movie or video game flops, the studio as a whole is affected. Right. I don't think Sony would have been affected by Horizon failing. No. But if Spider Man failed, Sony would be gone. Right. Or you know, not gone, but they Insomniac. would. Insomniac. They'd have. Yeah, Insomniac. But I mean, Horizon Zero Dawn may have been a PlayStation first party. But it was developed by Guerrilla Games. Which only really had one other game under its belt. Or one other series under its belt. And I don't even know what it is. Killzone. Oh, yeah. I never played any of those. I just think that I just think that there's something to be said for memorability and uniqueness of video games. And I think that AAA games tend to be very similar. And I don't, I don't even know necessarily that story 100% factors into it. I think gameplay is probably your bigger thing. There's not that much difference in how video like most AAA video games play from each other. That's yeah, fair. and they also they also all look the same. Yeah, <laughs> if you threw Aloy into God of War, you'd be like, it's weird that she has so much tech stuff, but she fits in. Right. Yeah. A lot of AAA games go for uh, modern. AAA games tend to have a more uh, what's the word realistic look. And then you have games like Psychonauts or Ratchet and Clank, which are very unique. Every Call of Duty game looks the same. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. And What's every really... Battlefield game looks the same. Like, all the AAA games, they, they just look the same. Right. And I think that they, they hit on the same themes in their storytelling as well. I think indie games are more likely to take on 
indie games and like games that are smaller than AAA, even just AA and single A games, are more willing to take on different themes. Whereas I feel like a lot of the themes that you see tackled in AAA video games, even if it's good stories, they are all good stories based on very similar themes. <laughs> like back to Ghost of Tsushima, I think it tells a great story, but this idea of do you embrace honor and tradition or do you take vengeance into your own hands is a very tried concept. Right. And like also like it has the same gameplay loop as every other open world game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, bunch of collectibles, go get them. Right, yeah. Like, you do the same things in Horizon Zero Dawn and Spider-Man. <laughs> Anyways, we have a lot more stuff to get into this episode, and we've already gone so long. So, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with all the headlines. Folks, it has been a week. There has been some wild changes to how Sony is handling their business. And for the most part, it's pretty bad. So there hasn't been changes. Well, <laughs> they're being explicit about some bad decisions now, some anti-consumer decisions. So a couple days ago, it was announced that Horizon Forbidden West, which is going to be releasing simultaneously on PS4 and PS5, was not going to have any option for a free upgrade for PS5. So there's there's three versions of the game. And the first two, just the standard and I guess the deluxe, do not come with the PS5 upgrade. It's the three after that that do. And two of those cost... Sorry, wait, did you say three after that? Yeah, there's five different versions. Why are there five different versions of the game coming out? I, I don't know. There might actually be four, because I can't think of what the one in the middle is. Because I know there's standard, deluxe, and then there's like... The collection and then like the regal collection i feel like there's a fifth but i honestly can't think of what it is so there may just not be a fifth <laughs> all right continue anyways yeah the biggest problem with this is that a while back it was said that certain ps4 games miles morales this something else don't remember what it was and then they were like and more will have free ps5 upgrades and then this didn't have a free PS5 upgrade. So naturally, people were mad. Well, this was this was even worse than just not having a free upgrade. This one didn't have a cheaper upgrade either. Because Ghost of Tsushima, yeah. you could upgrade from the PS4 to the PS5 director's cut for $30. The This one, you would have to buy another $70 game oh. Oh, to be what? able to play the PS5 version. Yeah, $140 to go from the PS4 to PS5 version, essentially. Oh, I wasn't even aware of that. Or I guess the seventy dollars to upgrade <laughs> on top of the sixty you've already paid for the game. Oh. Yeah. So it's just it's a wild way to handle this, and the the PS5 upgrade thing was great for a lot of reasons. One, it was pro consumer across the board. It's giving people more for less, which is always good. But specifically, it was giving people who hadn't been able to track down a PS5 a way to play games they've been anticipating but then make the switch over to the PS5 versions once they secure the console. And this is getting rid of that option, which just across the board sucks. Yep. Like, 
I mean, maybe Sony would have lost an amount of money that would have made this a reasonable choice, but it's still a bad way to handle it, and it's still bad for the users in the end. Well, it doesn't even seem like it would be good for Sony, because what you'd run into is you'd have people who buy the PS4 version instead of waiting for it, or you'd have people that don't buy the game until they get the PS5 version. So either way, it's going to hurt your launch numbers. Yeah. And then, on top of this already bad decision... Sony doubled down on this bad decision and they made an official statement saying that we will give free upgrades for Horizon Forbidden West, but no more after that. (laughs) We're officially done with this free upgrade nonsense after Forbidden West. So don't expect any more games with free or even just reduced priced upgrades in the future. And that's just well, it it looks like there'll still be a couple games that'll have like a ten dollar upgrade. I think it's just God of War and the new Gran Turismo, though. I they all need to have that. I think that's how all like two generations games need to be from this point on. Especially considering how hard it is to find the new console. Right. It'd be one thing if you could walk into a store and find a PS5 and buy it and take it home, and there were restrictions, on, yeah. you know, on what where you could play it. But I mean, it took me ten months to get a PS5, and that's a someone who was regularly checking sites for restocks. Yeah. So like, people won't. People that just think, you know, I should go out and buy this console won't be able to do that for bare minimum like another year. Yep. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure there's yeah I'm pretty sure there's also reports that the shortages will last for at least another year, anyways. So, look, I've said it before, probably not on this podcast though. I like the PlayStation exclusive games. I do not like Sony. I don't like most of the Xbox exclusive games, but I like Xbox as a company, or I guess the Xbox division of Microsoft. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Jackson is pro-Microsoft. Jackson is pro-Microsoft. What does Microsoft do good? Oh, they just... Game Pass. I mean, well, first of all, there's Game Pass. Second of all, literally all of their uh, Xbox One to Xbox Series X uh, versions are free. Oh, they also have a much better system input in place with their... uh, what, What do they call it? Like continuous delivery or whatever playstation just doesn't even have that if you because i'm pretty sure the way it works with the xbox is like you can basically download updates to xbox one games to get the xbox series s or x version yeah with playstation you have to completely download an entire new game yeah that's really annoying especially when which was a huge issue when the game when the console came out and people would download the ps4 and ps5 versions on accident right I shot myself in the foot with this once because I started a game on Jackson's PS5 thinking I'd be able to port a save. I played like eight hours of it over a weekend, then came to my PS4 at home and tried to download the save. And it was like, no, 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 that isn't how any of this works. <laughs> yeah, even with games on PS4, like uh, if with Avengers, you can't just download your save data from the cloud. You have to download Avengers. Yeah, that's for, how... Like the PS4 version and the PS5 version... And that's the only way you can get your save from the PS4 version into the PS5 version. That's insane. That's how Spider-Man is too. So I assume Miles Morales is the same. Yeah, it's it's a mess across the board. Sony's really 
not only is just lack of availability for PS5s a problem, but they're dropping the ball in so many ways about about the continuity between console generations. They were in the lead by so much over the Xbox One with the PS4 yeah. that I think that they just they, yeah. they gave up a little bit. Or they, they didn't stay on top of it. They also just also, like, only have two of their exclusives that have come to PC. While I think a lot of the Xbox One and Series X exclusives have come to PC, like, day of release. Well, I think that's because the Xbox... I think developing on Xbox and porting to PC is a lot easier than developing on PlayStation. If I had to guess... Microsoft probably has some stuff in place that specifically makes it harder for people developing for other consoles to have more issues getting stuff running on PC. But anytime you see a PC port of a game that is out on Xbox, it's almost definitely a port of the Xbox version, no matter what other consoles it's on. You can see this and how poorly Psychonauts runs, even on a PS5. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm tired of talking about all the ways that Sony makes me mad. And instead, I want to talk about the funniest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> but do you want to see it in live action? Anyways. Rick and Morty. This show was exhausting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll be honest. I don't want anyone to think anything about me as a person based on this next statement. Because I know the implications are harsh. I actually really like Rick and Morty. It's just the fans I can't stand. It's just I think the fans have managed to ruin the show for me. I don't even want to watch it, really. But, all that being said, they've gone full circle. As part of a new promo for the series, there is a live-action depiction of Rick and Morty with Christopher Lloyd, who was... Very clearly the inspiration for Rick in the first place, portraying Rick. Well, there's a... uh, He just straight up is the inspiration for him. Yeah, Rick and Morty actually started out as like a web short, or like the idea from it came, or the idea for it came from a web short called Doc and Marty, Hmm. where it was just, it was basically the same kind of idea, but it it was Doc Brown and Marty, like drawn in that similar animation style. And just being, like, super crass and stuff like that. You can still find it on YouTube, I'm sure. Just look up Doc and Marty. But, yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting. They're just leaning into the roots, you know. They got they got Chris, Christopher Lloyd back in his, his, you know, full-on Doc get-up. And they brought in, uh, they brought in Jaden Martell from It Knives Out to, uh, to, to play Morty. But... You know, it's it's a funny little it's a funny little trailer. Just talking about this show gives me like indigestion or something. Yeah, one might say I don't even know how to... it's the funniest stuff they've ever seen. Yeah, I can't decide if I should put the sensor beep on to in, to infer that you use profanity, or if I don't want to give you that. Uh. I'm just hoping that it's just a promo and they don't go wild and make like. A whole episode out of it. I don't even know if I would mind one episode. I just don't want to see it be like a permanent thing. I'm sure it wouldn't be. Yeah. It's just, that's more trouble than it could possibly be worth. Yeah. Part but... of the selling point for adult swim shows is they're incredibly cheap. 
It's true. They are cheap. And most of them are bad. Looking at you, Squidbillies. You know what else is bad? Blizzard. Wait. Wait. I have a good transition for this one. All right. Either of y'all know what time it is? <laughs> uh, it's uh, 8.27 p.m. Oh. Oh. I thought it was high noon. Sorry, you missed wow, that. Wow, you sound just like that currently unnamed character played by Matthew... Matthew Mercer. Matthew Mercer. I, I said it. Matthew and it threw me off. Because normally, <laughs> I'm so used to yeah. just calling him Matt Mercer. So, things are sort of going to hell for Blizzard. Um, Good. Blizzard all sucks. All self-inflicted. <laughs> um, and it turns out that some of the people that are involved in the lawsuits currently unfolding uh, were the namesake for important characters in Blizzard games. Specifically, one Jesse McCree from Overwatch, who was named after a former Blizzard staffer who has gotten into some stuff here lately. Uh, And as sort of a way of disassociating this person from Overwatch as a game, they are going to be renaming Jesse McCree. They have not said to what yet. So currently he is just known as the cowboy, which (laughs) for me personally, I just want to leave it that way. I just want him to be the cowboy. Is his name changed like in game or anything? Going forward, in-game characters will no longer be named after real employees and will be more thoughtful and discerning about adding real-world references and future Overwatch content. But it does not explicitly say that it's being removed from existing content. It's just not... His name will not be used in future content. Or he will be referred to by a different name in future content. Hmm. Yeah, I get, I get why they're changing the name. It just seems so weird that they decided to go with Manson. <laughs> that took me an, un, un, like, an unconscionable amount of time for me to piece together that was a joke. I still don't like, get it. I haven't played Overwatch in a minute. I haven't played it regularly in like three years. but I haven't played it since that whole... Oh, no, wait, I did play it for like a week because my friends really wanted to. See, this is exactly why I told them I didn't want to play. Now I can't have the moral high ground. How am I supposed to say I'm better than everybody that plays Blizzard games if I played them several months ago? Regardless, Blizzard screwed up. They got they have a lot that they got to do to make up for things. And I don't think that necessarily changing the name of one character in one game is quite getting there. But, you know, elephants feed peanuts or whatever. Whatever that saying is, that means that little things equal up to something big. You know what they say. Every mountain a molehill. On the topic of elephants, Disney. We've dunked on Sony. We've dunked on Blizzard. We dunked on Adult Swim a little. Yeah. Next, we're going to talk about the corporation Disney. Really, the paragon of corporate value. (laughs) I can't think of a single bad thing that Disney has ever done. If you just ignore the existence of that movie, Song of the South. Disney certainly has. (laughs) I'm not complaining, though. But anyways, amid 
the Scarlett Johansson versus Disney lawsuit. The Russo brothers have said that they may not return for any future movies, as they don't want to make a movie that people then don't get paid for because Disney doesn't, you know, follow the contracts they draw. <laughs> or Disney and intentionally works people out of the contracts even if it is technically correct or whatever disney's doing i'm like i get it like you it's know. weird because I, I do 100 percent agree with them i also wonder if they knew who they were working with when they signed on to do their first movie with them <laughs> the thing i struggle with the most in all of this since the start of the lawsuit is i think that there is almost no reasonable situation where a legal battle between Disney and any other party ends with the other party as the bad guy. But at the same time... Disney versus I, Nestle. Okay, that's fair. That's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you kind of have to know what you're getting into when you work for a corporation like this. And, I mean, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I... I will watch Disney products. I will watch basically every movie that Disney puts out. I'll probably watch one tomorrow. <laughs> like, I am I'm the exact type of person that is enabling Disney's awful, awful behavior. But also, they have acted like this for basically the, the company's entire existence. So, like, it's gotten worse in the last decade, but it's not new. Disney's just a legal monopoly, right? <laughs> Because, like, any I mean, business you can name is probably a legal monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, yeah. a lot of things Disney does are parts that are part of everyone's life. So that means they can just do bad things and get away with it. <laughs> the Absolutely. only way we're ever going to see anything happen is if lawmakers do something about Disney. I think Disney's probably going to end up winning this lawsuit sadly yeah but you know the supreme court or something could maybe look into overturning that decision or you know maybe some of the some of the people in office could try to actually control disney even in the slightest instead of just letting them get away with whatever they want to do it's, it's just, just it's one disney's, of those things where there's no disney's never going to regulate itself yeah and customers are never going to regulate it well it's not like there's there's options right right because disney has essentially from a movie standpoint they basically own all of the writers at least that are focused on like children's media or family media as far as you know like disney has completely taken over everywhere that they put vacation spots disney owns so much property around the world that they have used to push so many other businesses out like it's wild that they have gotten as far as they have with no intervention but at the same time god bless the free hand of the invisible hand of the free market or whatever all (laughs) hail the mouse free hand of the free market what they said but more aggressive I don't like talking about this. Disney makes me angry, and then I'm going to go and pay a bunch of money to watch one of their movies literally tomorrow. So, let's talk about something that I'm real excited about. You guys know Avatar? 
What? The blue people? No, no, the good one. Remember when we made this exact joke for our promo? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there have been requests by fans for quite some time for more Avatar content in all forms. And one of the things that people have been excited about for quite some time were these rumblings that an Avatar tabletop RPG could be on the way. So in September of this year, or no, July of this year, I don't know why I went forward a month instead of backward a month, we got a Kickstarter that was going to hopefully fund Avatar Legends, the role-playing game. It had a goal of $50,000 and one month to raise that. And in the last month of the 50000 requested, they have raised $9,535,317. This was funded in approximately 17 minutes. It is currently sitting at approximately 19,000% of its overall goal and they have expanded their projected production of this game on a level that they did not even comprehend before the, before this whole campaign started. Like this has drawn attention in ways that I don't think anyone really even thought was possible for a tabletop RPG. Well, I'm just glad that the that the small relatively unknown company Nickelodeon isn't going to have to spend any money on this. Yeah, it is incredibly weird for an established property like this for it to like to rely on Kickstarter as a campaign. My best guess is that there has to be some kind of arrangement between Magpie Games and Nickelodeon where Nickelodeon basically said this is zero sum for us. We will let you use the property, but you got to figure out the rest. And then Magpie was just like, well, we'll just kickstart it. And boy, oh boy, did it get kicked. Now, part of the reason that I'm excited for this is that, uh, one, the game is incredibly detailed in terms of the amount of content that's going to be available from the Game Master perspective. It's going to have five like entire timelines from the Avatar universe spanning like five generations and there's going to be an immense amount of detail put into the world and the society that is basically in play for five generations of the avatar universe which is very very cool but it also specifically is an expansion of the powered by apocalypse system which i think is one of the clearest and most inviting but still offers depth uh, TTRPG systems there is and I think that this could be a really big push to mainstream eyes TTRPGs for better or for worse <laughs> look I'm just hoping that I'll finally actually get to play a tabletop RPG because uh, I don't have friends um, so I don't get to play these type of games that's not this new game coming out isn't just going to magically give you friends. No, but I mean, like, you guys will also. It's play an it. inviting property, like, and I, yeah, I think it's something that more people would be interested in, even if they wouldn't necessarily be interested in something like Dungeons and Dragons. You know, we should do a campaign, Jordan. What? You, me, and the parents. Oh yeah. wait, I'm forgetting somebody. Hayden. Look, every time yeah. we've tried. To play a tabletop game with the parents, we stopped playing it after a month. 
But like, you guys will play this. You guys have friends that will probably play it. Hey, look, this game coming out isn't going to magically give us friends. <laughs> so I'm not all the only this aside, one without friends. <laughs> all this aside, it is wild to me that a TTRPG is now the ninth most backed campaign in all of Kickstarter. It is the most, the, the highest funded tabletop role playing game of all time on Kickstarter, Kickstarter by a pretty hefty margin. Like, just the sheer excitement there has been for this game has been has been wild. Now, there have still been some really annoying moments where I see this game being publicized in one way or another. And for some reason, uh, every time people in the comments are like, show gameplay or I'm not interested. And then other people have to come in and explain, like, that's not what RPG means in this situation. I'd play an Avatar rpg i think like a yeah video game yeah. i mean they only ever made like a couple avatar games and i'm thinking all of them were bad but they were yeah, also they were like, not rpgs they were like extra licensed somehow yeah they were they licensed them out and then that person was just like ah, i don't want to make it either <laughs> i i had the original like the first game they made that was about the story of book one uh, for PC. And I played it several times. And it was horrible. <laughs> I think they had a couple games like on the, the 3DS for Korra. There was there was a Fire Emblem-esque tactics game that starred Korra for the 3DS that was actually interesting. I think it I probably would have... Yeah. But it was fun. Like, it had fun moments. I think what people want to probably have with something like that is like an action game where you can actually you know do moves <laughs> yeah yeah something like okami if they could work that into being faster where you could do really unique stuff based on what you draw i've had this idea in my head for a avatar rpg like co-op thing for like years I've even, like, mapped it out in my head, like, how you would control each of the elements. I don't even just mean, like, mapped it out in terms of, like, what they could do. I mean, even thought about, like, what the control scheme to make those things happen would be. This is something I have put an immense amount of thought into. <laughs> and it's so wild that it's never been, like, not even, not even something that seemed like it's been considered that much. It's probably been considered something like with Flash video games where no one wants to make them because of how much you'd have to put into it. Okay, well, we have one more story to get into for this week, and it's another one about how Disney sucks and I hate them. <laughs> I, we shouldn't be surprised, but uh, yeah. Disney's basically said they don't want Frank Oz to come back and do anything with Muppets, uh, and Frank Oz says, good... You guys don't even get the Muppets. I don't want to be there anyways. <laughs> yeah, and like... Like, first off, more power to him. Like, good for him. But also, I think that he he handled this situation about as tastefully as one can. And he has a really interesting quote that I want to read here, which sort of sums up a lot of, a lot of thoughts regarding this whole situation. And he said... 
I'd love to do the Muppets again, but Disney doesn't want me, and Sesame Street hasn't asked me for 10 years. They don't want me because I won't follow orders, and I won't do the kind of Muppets they believe in. And on the surface, it seems kind of silly to be like, I want the real hardcore Muppets or whatever. But there's a certain level of personality that went into these characters that the corporate atmosphere of Disney just couldn't recreate like it's it's barely even possible yeah which seems weird because like the whole idea behind the muppets is entertainment you could really do almost anything with the muppets but disney still hasn't figured out how <laughs> yeah and they've tried multiple times and failed every and they're time. never going to figure it out <laughs> i think it's because there's this kind of like on some level anti-corporation stance of the muppets that Disney just wouldn't allow, as weird as it sounds. Yeah, no, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, a lot of what I've seen with the Muppets is kind of making fun of how businesses are run, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's literally what it's about in the two more recent shows. Like Muppet Babies? (laughs) I don't know. It's weird. Jim Henson, I... He basically knew that this was going to happen. And that was the reason he refused to sell Sesame Street. Yeah. Uh, because he knew that Sesame Street would just get used to sell stuff or something. And was adamantly against it. I think he should have kept, found a way to keep uh, Muppets too, And I think the Muppets would be a lot bigger today if he had managed it. Something like... Disney doesn't want to do puppets either is part of the problem. And I don't yeah. think the, the Muppets, first off... Wouldn't make sense, not as puppets. <laughs> and second, like, I just don't think that you can kind of capture the, the comedy and the stuff that they did with them with 3D animation. I think there also, there would inherently be a corporate agenda for these shows if Disney had complete control over them. It doesn't matter quite as much for the Muppets, I guess, but like... Sesame Street can only exist as it is and as successfully as it is because it's on PBS. Like, if that were bought out by, you know, some corporate channel, I think you would see an immediate shift in the tone. I think HBO owns the Sesame Street stuff. Does it? Oh, it does now, doesn't it? Yeah. Be interesting Hmm. to see uh, how that changes things. Yeah. Well, I don't actually know exactly how it works. Let me look. Jackson, off the top of your head, how many seasons do you think there are of Sesame Street? There's like 40-some, isn't there? There are 51. Guess how many episodes that is. Uh, This is not an Arthur situation, where there's like 18 seasons and like 19 episodes. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I I assume this is kind of like a lot of children's shows, where it's like 40-some episodes in one season, so... I don't know. Oh, no, no, Thousand so? There are 4,591 episodes of Sesame Street. Well, I think they've done them every single week for, like... It's more It's more than once a week sometimes. Hasn't... Yeah. But, yeah, it has been going consistently since 1969. I assume they record just, like, like a few months of these at once, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. They record several episodes a day sometimes. Still feel like that would This suck. isn't all going in the episode, by the way. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. So it looks like it's still, it's its own company called Sesame Workshop. 
It's aired on PBS since its debut, but now its first run is HBO ever since 2016. And then they go to PBS like nine months after they originally air. After HBO carries them the term. Yeah. Well, no, no. After HBO, <laughs> nine months after it premieres on HBO, it goes to PBS. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say, I think I'd rather watch 51 seasons and 4,000 episodes of Sesame Street before 30 seasons of The Simpsons. Okay. That's fair. They're both as Disney someone who really, oh, wait. As someone who really enjoys The Simpsons, I can say The Simpsons suck and <laughs> it is a bad show. <laughs> the only good Matt, Matt Groening, Groening show I've ever seen, Groening? I think it's Groening. Is Futurama. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that one. I think it. I know it's not groaning. Actually, I think it's graining. Oh, I think it's graining. Okay, well, this episode has been a lot of just three people googling things and then talking about them immediately after googling them. So, like, okay, well, we've gotten into a lot this episode, but I think it's time to pull the plug. It's interesting that I say pull the plug, but it's it's the sound effect of of a, a toilet which doesn't i mean has a plug but people don't generally associate plugs with toilets but anyways you're, you're the one that did that you know right i know i, know, I think i said so, i think i questioned it the first yeah. time we did it i I'm, I'm just thinking about it now but jackson what is something you've been into this week i bet you're gonna be so surprised by this one it's if you say freak- destiny we're skipping over you it's freaking Destiny 2. <laughs> it's a new season. We'll give you this yeah. one. Now, I'm actually going to talk about Destiny 2 a little differently this time around. I've always talked about PvP, uh, PvE because I pretty much only play PvE. But this week was Iron Banner, and I wanted those Pinnacle rewards to increase my power level because this is a numbers game. And this is the first time that I've actually found PvP in this game to be fun. <laughs> now, we were talking about this... Um, a good bit earlier for the first time there's not really a meta because usually in destiny there is a group of weapons that is 10 times better than everything else and for a long time that was hand cannons and shotguns and a one certain um subclass for warlocks in the solar subclass (laughs) but for the first time ever everything is mostly balanced other than vex mythoclass which has got a large buff but that's such an unattainable gun that it really isn't that big of a problem and for the first time ever pvp is fun because of it (laughs) will it stay that way for long no but if you like you know the old pvp of destiny one this is probably a good time to get back into it while it lasts so jason what have you been doing well I decided to kick it a little old school uh, because we watched Hayden, Abby and I did, uh, on Friday and Saturday. And at one point, I was just kind of looking through the PlayStation Store, and he was interested <laughs> in Parappa the Rappa, which is like a old PS1 game, like rhythm game. Where you play as a, a rapping dog. Uh, and it's something I'd always been interested in looking at. But, you know, it was just one of those things where it was so old and so, like, unique. I, I don't know. But it, it couldn't draw me in. Like, I didn't want to pay money for it. <laughs> but 
Hayden convinced me, and I, I bought Parappa the Rappa on my PS5. And, uh, yeah, that game sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> it is not fun. I was there, and I only played one level of this game. That was not fun. It's a rhythm game. All the stuff is just based around, you know, pressing the buttons on the controller at the right time. Um, Aren't all video games? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, I know what you mean. It didn't have. There's not like Guitar Hero where you have a guitar or anything, um, which makes sense because it's from like '96 or '97. <laughs> but it's just not good in any way, and I I don't understand how it ever got a sequel because it's not even good rap. It's like horribly written. It's worse than most like. It might be the worst rhythm game I've ever played. It is It is garbage. <laughs> Maybe for its time? I don't even think it was good for its time. We just shouldn't have been doing rhythm games at that time. It When it came out, people were like, this is bad. And then we didn't do rhythm games again <laughs> until whenever uh, whenever Kingdom Hearts 2 came out. <laughs> I, I do just want to say, though, I, I want to throw this out there. There was a mission Jason was playing. And he failed maybe like four or five times. I played it once. And beat it on the first try, so... It made no sense, though. Because it would say I failed, even though my rating at the end of the song was good. I, I didn't. I don't understand why I was failing some hey, of them. at least one of the times you failed, it said, you're, you're, it said you rapping was bad. Yeah. One time it said you rapping bad, and every other time it said you rapping good. Which there are four rankings, and good is the, the next to highest one. <laughs> I, I have no idea what was going on no one does i don't think i've played this game since it was relatively new and i would have only been four or five at the time so i remember basically nothing about it other than the art style and i think i really think the reason it was so popular at the time was sort of for the same reason as psychonauts is for us it was just so like weird and different and intentionally cheesy and like i don't know it was just it was something it was something wild that just came in a time when all games were Crash Bandicoot or Spyro or trying to be Crash Bandicoot or Spyro. So, yeah, it was something. What a time to live. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Only one of us did. I've played older games than that. I've played contemporary games with that game. And obviously I've played newer games. And I can say I've never played a game like that and I never <laughs> want to again. I never want to watch someone play that game ever again. <laughs> I, I do want to know, though. But Parappa the Rappa was my big thing. So, Jordan, what you been up to? Well, unlike you losers, I'm going to talk about a book. So, uh, I talked rather excitedly about Avatar Legends a little bit earlier. And, uh, like I said, Avatar is sort of making a comeback in multiple mediums. One of which is the novel about avatar kiyoshi and her rise to becoming the avatar which i picked up a couple weeks back and i'm not gonna say it's like the da vinci code level smart or anything like that but it's a cool book and it explores some themes that hadn't really been addressed in other avatar mediums but just because it's it's still a, a, a kid show and they didn't want to go too dark but this book gets violent and shows the darker side of that universe and the struggles that an avatar can go through. And it also explores Kyoshi's relationships with 
her masters and her friends in a really unique way. Um, again, I don't think it's like the best written book in the world, but it has a really unique story and some really cool perspectives that, that the universe was lacking otherwise. So highly recommend it if you're of the Avatar is good sort and of the reading books is cool sort. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a good little book. I thought the Da Vinci Code was famously like overcomplicated and bad. That was always my understanding of the Da Vinci Code. Is it considered to be a smart book? I thought it was just like... Oh no, I just mean like a lot of people thought it was a smart book for a very, very long time. And that people... A lot of people who enjoyed it claimed that the reason other people didn't enjoy it was because they weren't smart enough to understand the convolutedness of it. But really, it was just convoluted. I wasn't a part of these discussions before the Da Vinci Code was made into a movie, so... <laughs> yeah. And after it was made into a movie, I think most people didn't like it, so... That's fair, yeah. People were finally like, wow, that was bad. But, yeah, it, it's a good little book, though. It's a quick read. Well, okay, The Da Vinci Code? It's like 400 <laughs> pages, but... Good little yeah. book, it's a good read. Check out The Da Vinci Code, that's Jordan's <laughs> official recommendation. <laughs> Yeah. He said if you don't like it, it's just because you don't get it. So this week we talked about Psychonauts 2, Destiny 2, Parappa the Rappa, and the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> if you've liked what you've heard, which you might have, odds are against it, but you know, it's possible, you can reach us on Twitter at TBMcast, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. You can send an email with your thoughts about the show, your suggestions, your reviews of things, which we may read on the show. Your opinions uh, you of the Da Vinci Code and whether it is smart or overrated. Absolutely that. Uh, Tell us if I need to quit talking about Destiny 2. You do. The answer is Shut yes. Shut up. I, I was talking but to the listeners. Any suggestions you have or anything that you want to share with us, send it to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com, and we'd love to incorporate it into the show in some capacity. But, for the Totally Biased Media podcast... Wait, 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 before you do this, um, I, I think you might need to check the email. You know, just to make sure that we don't have any important emails from the fans. Uh, it doesn't look that way. Uh, just keep sitting there. Just, you know, refresh it a couple times. Make sure, you know, someone okay. could send us an email right now while we're recording. Oh, wait, refresh it now. I think Oh, I... yeah, you're right. You're right. We actually do have uh, our first email address from user Jason Simmons uh, with the subject, Jackson <laughs> not talk about destiny. <laughs> I'm sorry. I only take coherent English as reasons to quit playing destiny. And... Well, it, and, I think uh, it, it has a message, Jason too. Jason has a really interesting suggestion, which is just make him stop. <laughs> I'm sorry. I only take coherent Latin to quit playing Destiny. Anyways, I did explicitly say I was going to work it into the podcast, so I guess we just got to start cutting all the Jackson Destiny talk. But regardless of how much we do or do not talk about Destiny, for the Totally Biased Media Podcast... I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.
it's all right. 